0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. So as you know, we as human beings are intensely, and I do mean intensely relational, aren't we? And so from the moment that we are born into the world, we are immediately looking to make connections with those around us. And uh, frankly, that's one of the reasons why organizations have uh, suggested, health organizations, how important skin-on-skin contact is between a baby and his mother. Uh, Organizations recognize the myriad of benefits that come with an early intimate bond between two people. But here's the thing while this is true in our infancy, uh, it is also true as we get older that we need connection with others, which is why each of us longs for friends who we can love, who love us, who we can share life with, be supported by, have fun with, cry with, and share the whole gamut of human experiences with. And the reason for this is obvious. The Bible says that we are made for companionship. We are made for companionship. In fact, Genesis says it like this, that it is not good for man to be alone. And that's a pretty amazing statement to read in Genesis because this is before the fall this is before sin enters the world and as you're reading genesis we see god created and he said it was good and he created again and he said it was good and you see this pattern and then all of a sudden here you see man is created and the first time something's not good is that man is alone thus pointing out again how we are created for companionship and uh Therefore, we are not surprised to find that there are actually a number of studies that suggest how more than any other factor, a person's long-term health and happiness could actually be determined by the quality of their friendships. You aware of this? Maybe you've seen some of those studies. Uh, Research has indicated that people who feel isolated or have fewer external interactions are found to be less happy. Their health declines earlier in midlife their brain functioning decreases sooner, and they tend to have shorter lives. So the advice is clear. Make sure to have good friends, and you will live longer and be healthier and the like, right? And uh, in fact, for this reason, it's been said that loneliness could possibly have the same effect on one's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the impact on longevity, Bet you didn't think about the need for friendships quite like that, have you? Still, though, there is a real fear by many of having close relationships. Why? Simply put, because the tapestry of human interactions is not without its frays and tears, which all of you, I am sure, are acquainted with to some degree or another, because the fact is, You don't have to live long to realize that there are wounds which one acquires in and from relationships, isn't there? And uh, in fact, in my home, I see this quite regularly, right? Two kids will be playing together, and they'll be the best of friends. Everything will be going great. And then the next moment, all of a sudden, one gets annoyed, stops sharing toys with the other, maybe even uh, pushes the other or fights them or what have you, right? But how quickly things end up going from good to bad because of how cruel uh, that people can be. And some of you have even experienced what I'm talking about even this week. Perhaps it was a text message where you felt attacked or criticized or wrongly represented. Uh, Perhaps someone broke a promise that they made to you or uh, shared a secret uh, that they swore that they would keep. Uh, Perhaps uh, you were lied to or someone sought to destroy your reputation or even worse, physically harm you. I don't know, but I know this. There's a great many reasons why we become distrustful, nervous, and fearful of relationships. And because of this, unfortunately, even some of you here today are very difficult to have a relationship with because you hold everyone at an arm's distance lest anyone be given the chance to hurt you again. And let me just say, if that's true, first of all, I'm sorry. I am truly sorry for how you have been hurt by others. But secondly, I hope that you'll find some encouragement from our passage today. How? By noticing how Jesus deals with those who have mistreated him. And one thing that hopefully will become clear is that no matter what you've been through, Jesus really can say, I get it. I get it. I've been there, and I have seen the worst of it. And so uh, we're going to learn about relationships today, but even more than that, we're especially going to learn once again about the depth of Christ's uh, love as he is manipulated, exploited, and betrayed by a friend. And so with that, if you would, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles open to Matthew 26, where today we're going to be spending our time in verses 14 through 25. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 25. And uh, you know, if you're new to our church, let me just explain. We pick a book of the Bible and we teach through it. So we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite a while. And uh, so not long ago, we were looking at the Olivet Discourse. We've been looking at the last week of Jesus' life for a very long time while we're getting very close to wrapping things up. And uh, You know what's coming. Even with that introduction, we are coming to the moment of Jesus' betrayal. So that's what our passage is focused on this morning. But again, if you would, follow along with me. Beginning of verse 14, Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man... If he had not been born, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So, the moment has come. We knew it would eventually get here. Now here it is, the moment when Judas will kick Jesus to the curb. A man who has done nothing but love him and care for him and serve him for approximately three years. And since Judas and his act of betrayal is front and center, uh, center here's how we're going to move through our text. This is our outline. I'm going to give it to you up front today. Uh, first, we're going to look at a betrayer's agreement in verses 14 through 16. And then we're going to look at a betrayer's appointment in verses 17 through 19. And then we're going to look at a betrayer's acknowledgement in verses 20 through 25. So Our first point then, a betrayer's agreement, a betrayer's agreement. So keep in mind where we found ourselves last week. We noticed how the religious leaders, the elders, and the chief priests went to the high priest's palace, Caiaphas's place, where they, we are told, in chapter 26, verse 4, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, one thing that we definitely learn from these verses is how the religious leaders actually did not intend to arrest Jesus during the Passover since they were afraid of how people might riot given Jesus' popularity among the masses. But that plan obviously changes when Judas comes to the religious leaders with an offer that they did not expect and certainly will not refuse, which we read about in verse 14, look there, Judas says, "What will you give me if I deliver him over to you?" And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. Uh, now there's two things that I want to point out in this agreement. Uh, the first is Judas's motivation, and the second is really the significance of the thirty pieces of silver. So Why did Judas give up Jesus? Well, clearly, we see here that he was motivated by self-concern, which is evident in how he essentially says, you want Jesus? What's in it for me? What will you do for me? What will you pay me? This is clearly a very self-centered person. But as you know, self-centeredness can take all sorts of different forms, so that isn't hugely descriptive. So some people have speculated the following as to why Judas did what he did. Uh, some have said that he was functioning out of greed. You know, he's looking to get rich quick, and this is his chance. Uh, some say he's functioning out of uh, disappointment, uh, perhaps even resentment, uh, perhaps even looking to take revenge on Jesus. After all, Jesus did not deliver in all the ways that Judas had hoped. Uh, Therefore, this is the opportunity to kind of get back at Jesus. And then there's the less common suggestion that some believe Judas was actually trying to force uh, Jesus' hand. And so the thinking is, uh, well, if if I give up Jesus and then this kingdom he's talked about, uh, as people go to arrest him, he's going to feel the need to uh, defend himself. And maybe at that point, he'll actually use his divine power and establish his kingdom. So which is it? Uh, personally, well, for sure the last one, I would say that's just, I don't know, just some ideas just can be quick, quickly discarded. Uh, I think we can do that with the last idea. But I do think that there's a lot to be said, certainly about uh, the greed that Judas had—we uh, know that he, as the treasurer, was helping himself to the money bag. Uh, he was greedy. He was a thief. At the same time, I think that there is a lot of resentment. There's probably the feeling of, "Really, really? After all, I've given up." Uh, you, you know, there's always a cost in following Jesus, right? I mean, at some level, Judas calculated the cost. He he left a vocation. He left family members. And all, certainly with the prospect that he's just going to hang on to the coattails of Jesus and follow him into a place of glory and power and wealth and all of that, right? Well, that, that obviously doesn't happen. And so now, where are we at? Here, Jesus is being sold out for 30 pieces of silver. And, uh, you know, 30 pieces of silver probably sounds like a lot to us. I mean, most of you... You don't have 30 pieces of silver at home, as far as you're concerned, precious metals must rake in a lot of cash, anything gold, anything silver, that's a lot of money, right? But the fact is, it really wasn't in Jesus' day, because it was only the equivalent of about three months' worth of wages, and uh, you know, you just got to compare that with what we looked at last week, right, where we saw that beautiful scene where Mary, the, uh, uh, the sister of Lazarus, Mary, the sister... Um, of Martha, and she comes uh, with an alabaster flask of oil, and she just dumps it out on Jesus. She, 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 I mean, she covers him from head to toe with this oil, and uh, this, uh, this oil was valued at, we said, nine to ten months worth of wages. And so, uh, I mean, what a wide, uh, just a, a wide gap, right, between how Mary views Jesus and how Judas views Jesus. Mary gives almost 10 months' worth of wages to Jesus, while Judas exploits him for less than half of that. And it's stunning because, you know, it's not like three months' wages. Is that really going to change much uh, for Judas? Probably not. Uh, I I don't see him, you know, buying up a bunch of property and living on an acreage, right? I mean, this isn't going to send him into retirement at this moment. So you can kind of only just wonder to yourself, you know, why 30 pieces of silver. Why didn't he try to get more? Um, And, you know, we we don't really know why from a human perspective. But we do know why 30 pieces of silver is the uh, agreed-upon amount from God's perspective. Uh, Why? First, to demonstrate God's faithfulness. But secondly, to demonstrate his graciousness. These two things are kind of wrapped up with that sum of 30 pieces of silver. What do I mean well first let 's mention the faithfulness. So one thing we know is that thirty pieces of silver is specifically foretold of in Zechariah chapter eleven verses twelve through thirteen and you know you can just add that to all of the other prophecies about jesus death that were given at least four hundred years before it happened in fact there 's at least two dozen of those. Uh, let me give you a few others so we 're told that Jesus will be betrayed by a friend. Uh, We're told that the money uh, will be cast to the floor of the temple. Uh, We're told how it will be used to buy uh, a potter's field. Uh, We are told that Jesus will be forsaken and deserted by his disciples. Uh, We're told that he will be accused of by false witnesses. And there's so many other prophecies, right? And we're thankful for these because what do they continue to reveal to us? That our God is absolutely in control of all things. Our God governs the future just as much as he has the past. And friends, we need to be reminded of this time and again because we come into moments, even like yesterday, maybe you woke up and you saw the news about Israel and you go, what is this world coming to? What is going on? And your heart breaks with all the suffering that's going on. And our hearts should break when we see human suffering. At the same time, Amidst all the instability, we know this, God's up to something, right? God is always up to something, and he is in control, and uh, prophecy is always the reminder of that, and therefore, we know this, we can always set our hope on him, he will not let us down, that in Christ, in Christ, we are only going to win, because Jesus, at the end of the day, will win. So... We see how 30 pieces of silver demonstrates God's faithfulness, but it also demonstrates his graciousness. In what way? Well, because 30 pieces of silver is mentioned in another context aside from prophecy, it's also mentioned in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. An interesting thing about Exodus, right, is you see all of these civil laws, you see uh, all of these things listed as to what someone must do if something else happens, right? Well, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, we're told this, that if an ox gores a male or female slave, the owner was supposed to pay 30 shekels of silver as compensation. So, point being this, get this, that the savior of the world is sold for the sum of a slave. Let me say that again. The savior of the world is sold for the sum of, Of a slave. And think about that because what does it remind us about? That Jesus, He is the King of kings. He is the King of glory who steps down from heaven into earth to take on flesh, to be born of a woman, to live in poverty, to live in obscurity, to live in a sin cursed world. Why? To become a servant, a slave who would serve you and me. And I want you to dwell on that, because get this. Friends, you will not serve God rightly until you realize how he has served you. Let me say that again. You will not serve God rightly until you realize how he has served you. And why do I make this emphasis? I make it because I think there's actually a danger that exists in our serving of God. There is a way that we can approach serving God that I think can demean him and belittle him by how we attempt to serve him. How so? I think this happens when we emphasize what man does always rather than emphasizing what God does. And let me just tell you something that got under my skin a little bit, which made me think about this application. So just the other week, I was... uh, on Facebook, and all of a sudden a video popped up of a preacher exhorting his congregation to do more for God. And let me just say, plenty of what he said, I was in total agreement with. You know, he was pleading with the congregation to live in obedience to the Lord. Pray more. Give more. Serve more. Sacrifice more. And I think all of us, we can say, amen, because we can look at the Bible and know that God is calling us to live in obedience to Him. The problem came in when the preacher ended up essentially saying that God needed the congregation to do these things. Really? Now, I'm a little confused because last time I checked, God doesn't ever need us at any point, does He? God is completely self sufficient. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Because he takes people like us, people who truly have no business serving him at all, and he draws us to himself. And, 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 and we who were once enemies, he brings close to himself and he says, guess what, I'm going to bring you in and you're going to be my friend and you're going to be part of my family and in Christ I'm going to forgive you. And as we even talked about the other week, right, and the beauty of the gospel is not only does God save us, but he does indeed save us for works which have been prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, right? So do we care about serving? Yes, absolutely. But when do we serve God at our best? Not when we see him as the beneficiary of our benevolence, but the other way around. And... Uh, And you know, I think this is really expressed well, even when you think about the ministry of Jesus, how he came to serve. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, here we've seen the faithfulness of Christ, and we've seen the graciousness of Christ this brings me to my second point today now we're going to notice a betrayer's appointment so we've seen a betrayer's agreement now we'll notice a betrayer's appointment and uh, notice how the scene shifts in verse 17 if you would where no longer are we really looking at Judas but we see how Jesus is making sure that all the arrangements are taken care of in order for him to celebrate the passover with his disciples and You know, when you're reading this, the details are really simple. We can pass over them. Uh, We notice how the disciples are just tying up a a few loose ends. It seems they're gathering what's required. They make sure the room is reserved, right? Uh, But there's an important statement made, particularly in verse 18, if you would look there. Notice what Jesus tells the disciples to say to the man hosting their Passover meal. They are to tell him, the teacher says, my time is. Is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The phrase I really want you to hone in here is um, "my time is at hand." And this takes me back to something that I said last week, right? Which is that one of the things we must always remember is that the death of Christ is not an accident it is it is not a mistake but it is planned ordained predestined and designed by god and so it is the result of his wisdom his knowledge and his power is it a tragedy absolutely in one sense yes because no person let alone the son of god should ever be mistreated as he was at the same time however The cross is also the achievement of God by which he vindicates and fulfills his promises by accomplishing redemption for the glory of God and the good of the saints. And uh, here's what you have to love about Jesus when you think of all this, right? That he just always knew what was written of him. He knew his purpose. He knew what he had to do. He knew when he had to do it, and he willingly and joyfully does what is required, and so we see within Jesus a profound resolve, don't we? Because does he dodge the bullet of God's wrath which is coming? No. He doesn't duck, he doesn't dodge, he doesn't get out of the way, but he willingly does what needs to be done. And praise God that he does this, right? Praise God that he is the faithful one because none of us in this room would have the hope of the forgiveness of sins if Jesus doesn't go and suffer for us. Amen? And in fact, one thing that's interesting to think about is how aware Jesus always is of the pace at which things are advancing towards his sufferings. Uh, For example, we can think of John 2, verse 4. At the wedding in Cana, when his mother informs him that they have run out of wine. And Jesus replies this way, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, John 7, verse 30 During the Feast of Tabernacles, also another example, some sought to seize Jesus, but then we read, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, again in the temple courts, no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus knows his hour. Even more interestingly, though, he avoids certain conflicts so that he arrives at his sufferings, And at the cross at just the right time. One example would be John 7 verse 1. We read that Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So he avoids confrontation in certain instances. Because he knows if he were involved in the confrontation, something would happen before it's his time. Well, guess what? As we read this passage, here we see Jesus say, right, that his time has finally come and it must be his time. Why? Because as John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb for those who need redemption and we'll get into this more uh, next week as we talk about the Lord's Supper but Again, the significance of the Passover feast cannot be overstated. This uh, meal was instituted by God. It was a time to celebrate God redeeming his people, bringing them out of slavery, bringing them out of Egypt. But this all points forward to Jesus, the final, the ultimate, the true lamb of God who would make redemption possible for anyone and everyone who turns to Jesus Christ and places their faith in him. So this is the time, and it must be. So we have looked at a betrayer's agreement. We have looked at a betrayer's appointment. Now let's notice our last point today, a betrayer's acknowledgement. And now we find ourselves at the Passover meal as we look at verses 20 through 25 and You know, just think about the scene, right? I mean, this is is the holiday of holidays. It does not get any better than this particular celebration. Uh, You have friends who have been together through thick and thin for three years. Uh, These men have done everything together. They have lived together, served together, worked together, cried together, and celebrated together. And now here they are in as intimate of a setting and a moment as we can comprehend, and uh, you know, understand that when you shared a meal together back in Jesus' day, it wasn't some high top table, right? I mean, you're you're very close to each other. You're actually laying down with your head towards the table and your feet away from the table, and. You know, this is why John, the beloved disciple, could be said to have laid his head on the bosom of Jesus, because there they are, lying up right next to each other. All John would have had to do is just turn his head and lay on Jesus' chest, right? A very intimate setting. Uh, what, a, what a highlight of a moment to be here with Jesus, but obviously the mood of the room shifts rather quickly when Jesus suddenly says, tonight, one of you will betray me. Tonight, one of you will betray me. And notice the response by the disciples. Every person begins to ask this question. They say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Think about that. Kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? Is it I, Lord? And it's interesting because, I mean, you'd you'd kind of expect the blame game to kind of start off here, right? One of you is going to betray me. But there's no... Oh, is it Peter? I know, we, we know he can be in a hot emotional mess. Uh, you know, there, there's no, is it maybe the sons of thunder? We know they could be rather hot-headed. Uh, even more importantly, no one suggests Judas, but why would they? I mean, this is a guy that's like never in trouble. You ever notice that in the Bible? He is never in trouble. So, uh, you know, he, he doesn't boast like Peter He doesn't seek a burn the Samaritans campaign like the Sons of Thunder. He's never scolded. Uh, He's never rebuked. Uh, He never pulls a sword on anyone. Huh? Apparently, he can uh, control his temper a bit. Uh, No, he just flies under the radar. And in fact, uh, as you know, he probably would have been considered the most trustworthy because he is indeed the treasurer of the money that's given for the Lord's ministry. And so nobody is assuming that it's Judas Uh, So nobody is blamed, and each disciple says, one after the other, with a certain amount of self-distrust, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And, you know, there's probably something really healthy about this when you think about it. I mean, these men, they actually see within themselves the potential to turn their back on Christ. And let me just ask you, you ever feel that way? You ever feel that your heart is prone to wander? You ever feel like you could leave the God you love? I mean, we kind of sang about it this morning, didn't we? I mean, there's this declaration, I need the every hour. That's that's a healthy perspective to have. Uh, that That is a proper thought because at any given moment, frankly, if it is not for God's grace, any of us could depart and be overcome by our own sins, by our own lusts. And, uh, you know, I guess I say this because there's plenty of people that probably assume that it's the strongest Christians who never have doubts. You know, they're just always on top of their game. They're always confident. Uh, they're always sure of themselves. But, you know, something that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's, it's a mature Christian who knows how far they would run from Christ if not for his power and his grace. And so they continually come to him, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And so each disciple, they say this, is it I? And then Jesus gives more information when he says in verse 23, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And so we learn here that no longer is the betrayer in the room, But now Jesus also goes on to say that he's using the same dish as him. So this implies that this particular disciple is is very, very near Jesus around the table. And uh, I I just want you to, to think of this because, I mean, Jesus knows the evil intentions of Judas's heart. He knows what Judas has been up to all along. He knows every time Judas has helped himself to the offering and used it for his own selfish purposes. He knows all of this, and yet here the disciples are, and even as Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of them are thinking about Judas at all. Why? I think it obviously speaks to the generosity of Christ's love and his kindness. At any point, um, Does Jesus treat Judas with resentment? I don't think so. I think he continued to treat him no differently than all the other disciples. And he continued to shower upon Judas kindness and goodness and patience and forbearance and all these things. And I point this out because, friends, the fact is you might be in a relationship right now where you kind of have the assumption that, you know, this person who I'm around quite a bit really doesn't desire the best for me. In fact, maybe they're even to some extent a friend. I don't know, we've got a, a word in our vocabulary these days called frenemy, right? Like, a frenemy is one of those people you're like, I, don't, I sometimes I feel like you're for me, but I can't really figure it out because other times I feel like you're hoping the worst for me right? I don't know. We all have relational tension in our lives. We all have hurts that we acquire. And the question is, how are you going to respond in the midst of those? Well, I think Jesus really patterns for us what these relationships should still look like, that as much as it depends on us, that we shower those around us with love and kindness and forbearance. And I think, frankly, this is pointed out By Paul in Romans 12, let me just read this. It's one of the most beautiful passages that speaks to the genuineness of Christian love. That this is the kind of love that God calls all of us to. Romans 12, beginning of verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And do do we not see Jesus live this out perfectly? He has an enemy at his table at the most intimate meal a, a group of people could share together. And yet nobody knows that Judas is the one that's going to betray him. So all of this is going on till eventually Judas also and finally says, it finally comes to him, is it I, rabbi? Is it I, rabbi? And Jesus says to him, you have said so. And there it is. There's the acknowledgement, right? And Jesus has now made it absolutely clear who the betrayer is. But uh, that's not to say that this is public information, right? As you're thinking about the scene here, Uh, Jesus is not making it widely known yet that Judas uh, is the betrayer. Uh, And we know this because when we look at the Gospel of John, it kind of fills in some of the details for us. It would seem that a couple of the disciples knew, nobody else does. Uh, The beloved disciple John knows, Peter knows, Judas knows. It uh, it doesn't seem like anybody else knows. Uh, We know this from John chapter 13. We read there, In verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped, when he had dipped, The morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So... Judas is the betrayer, and, uh, and frankly, we aren't necessarily surprised by this now that we've seen how Judas addresses Jesus, because did you notice how differently he addresses Jesus than the other disciples? Each disciple addresses Jesus as Lord. Is it I, Lord? But Judas ends up calling him rabbi. Is it I, rabbi? And so he avoids the term that essentially means master, opting for the more general term of teacher, which kind of seems to imply that Judas, in his heart, has certainly distanced himself from Jesus Christ. And maybe you've seen this. You have two people who are in a conflict with each other, uh, two people who may have been best friends, but then there's a breakdown in the relationship, and and suddenly uh, they aren't knowing each other as best friends, they're just acquaintances. Uh, maybe co-workers, right? Uh, maybe classmates, because the relationship has changed. And that's what happened in Judas's heart. He departed in his heart from Jesus, and now it's expressed in the words that he is uttering about his relationship to Jesus. And so we know it's coming, right? Uh, this is the moment that Judas will now walk out and he will then seek an opportunity to betray Jesus. All the arrangements are coming. Together And it's incredibly sad. Why? Uh, because this is truly one of the worst sins that has ever been committed, if not the worst sin to have ever take place. Uh, why? Because it's not merely the betrayal of a person, but it is the betrayal of the best person, the kindest person, the most loving person, the most holy person who has ever lived. And here Judas is exploiting him and using him for his own personal gain. And You know, the the statement is clear about how bad that this sin is. It would have been better, we're told, that this person had never been born. And there we see again, don't we, the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, don't we? That the death of Christ, all of this is planned by God. At the same time, it is brought about by the evil intentions of men. And therefore, we praise God for his sovereign will but we also are reminded that all will be judged according to his perfect moral will and all will give an account for their lives. And friends, I would remind you of the same this morning. I would remind you of the same. One day you will stand before God in judgment and everything that you have done, every careless word that you have uttered, it'll all be seen as clear as day by the Lord. And on that day, there will only be one question one question that you will have to give an account for what did you do with my son what did you do with my son you know we can be really hard on judas we really can but the fact is i have to i have to wonder how many judases are present in the church right now are you a judas We see in this passage a clear danger. You can show up to church. You can be near Jesus. You can do things with Jesus, with the people of Jesus all day long. But the question is, where's your heart? Do you love Jesus? Do you cherish him? Do you value him? Is he everything to you or is he just another thing amidst everything else? Friends, we can be so self-deceived. Do you love Jesus? That's the greatest question. It's not about coming to church. It's not about following through with the rhythms of the church. But at the end of the day, do you come to him continually, truly saying and expressing, as we sang earlier, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. Judas, Judas didn't feel that way. Judas didn't think that way. And it's all very sad because, again, he was constantly surrounded by the mercy of Christ every single day. Friend, I have to ask you, you look at your life. God's given you so much. He's continued to shower you with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. The family you have, the health that you have, the things that you have, they're all from the Lord. But are you going to take from the Lord to use all that he has given you for your own selfish gain? If you do so, you are no different Judas, and if you're in that place, I can only give you one encouragement repent, repent, and trust in Jesus because He is a willing Savior. He is one who was willing to go to the cross so that you would not have to suffer under the righteous condemnation and punishment of God. Friend, turn to Jesus. You will find no one who is more filled with affection, more filled with sympathy, and more filled with grace, no matter what you've done. Salvation can be yours. That is why Christ came. And Judas, we know, laid that opportunity aside. But you don't have to because the Savior stands prepared to forgive you of your sins. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.